Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, can you open them up to the book of Genesis, chapter 31? And verse 43. I have the best intentions to finish this chapter today, but we'll have to see how that goes. The uh, title of our message this morning is The Misery of Materialism. The Misery of Materialism. As you know, we have been looking at, in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Genesis, the life of Jacob. Jacob, just like Abraham, just like Isaac, are very foundational characters because God is using those three patriarchs to develop a very special nation. A nation that hasn't even been named yet. It's going to get named, I believe, in chapter 32, the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel in the Bible being a big, big deal because God has purpose to bless the world, including the Messiah, coming from Israel. You know, we would have no blessings whatsoever had God not strategically worked in the formation and the foundation of this nation. And one of the strategic characters, Jacob, has spent 20 years in Haran, He entered Haran from Canaan, the circle at the top there, empty-handed and single. He now leaves Haran 20 years later with uh, two wives, two bridesmaids, 11 sons, and a daughter. And he's become very wealthy in the process despite the fact that he was under a man named Laban who did everything to cheat Jacob. So this just shows you the power of the Abrahamic covenant that God entered into with Abraham as it was passed down to Isaac and to Jacob. God specifically said, and we've studied studied it as we've gone through Genesis, I will bless you. Laban doesn't like the fact that Jacob has left. Laban overtakes Jacob in the Transjordan Mountains before he enters Canaan. And the two of them sort of have a face-off, so to speak. It's obviously these two men don't like each other. They don't trust each other. And it's at this point Laban proposes that the two of them enter into a covenant That's what's described here in verses 43 through 55. It's a little bit, um, well, it's not the most popular Bible verses you've ever seen on planet Earth. Let's just put it that way. I mean, these aren't verses people put on their cars and all this kind of stuff. But it's, as I'll explain, it's necessary to understand other things in the Bible. It's necessary to understand the book of Genesis as it will unfold to us. And so this is this covenant that these two men enter into. The first thing you see here is a covenant proposal by Laban to Jacob. And notice, first of all, 
Laban's claim to ownership. Verse 43, then Laban replied to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. And the children are my children. And the flocks are my flocks. And all that you see is mine. Speaking of Jacob's wealth and Jacob's family. And you could probably tell based on the pronunciation that I gave coming from Laban's mouth to Jacob that Laban has a really bad case of the eyes. Eyes and mys. Your daughters are my daughters, even though Jacob worked for those daughters, as we've talked about. The children are mine. The flocks are mine, even though Laban did everything within his power to cheat Jacob. And when we start looking at things that God gives us as mine, when my holy trinity consists of me, myself, and I, we're actually in a bad place. Laban, as I'm going to describe today, is in a really bad place. And you know you're in a bad place when you look at everything as your own, even though it's not. The New Testament, what it teaches us is that none of it's ours. It all comes from God. And if God gave it, Paul asks, then why do you boast as if you earned it yourself? Everything that we have, health, finances, salvation, spiritual blessings, time, talent, treasure, none of it's ours. All of it comes from God, and we are mere stewards of what God has given us. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Since none of it belongs to us, who are we? We're stewards, we're managers on behalf of God. And because God is the owner of everything that we have, right down to our health, our relationships, the day in history will come, we call it the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ for the Christian, where we will give an account of how we managed God's things on his behalf. There's a whole parable that Jesus talked about this issue, the parable of the talents. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 25. When you start seeing things as yours, you know, my innovativeness, my ideas, pastors do this all the time. This is my ministry. This is my church. It's not a good place to be in. Laban, as we're going to see, is in a lousy spiritual place. It reminds me of the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verses 30 and 31, where Nebuchadnezzar, presiding over Babylon, got a bad case of the eyes. It says in Daniel 4, verse 30, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I... Myself have built as a residence by the power of, or the might of my power and the glory of my majesty. I, my, mine. We know from Daniel 2 that that wasn't the case. Daniel 2 tells us that 
God is the one that allowed sovereignly the Babylonian Empire to come into existence. God just put Nebuchadnezzar in a place of stewardship over Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar in his mind got confused, just like Laban is confused. The very next verse, Daniel 4, verse 31 says, While the word was in the king's mouth. In other words, he had hardly gotten these words out of his mouth. A voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. The moment the words came out of his mouth, God made a decision. Your sovereignty is taken away. And you can read all about that in Daniel 4. As he was turned into um, an insane person who thought he was an animal for a period of seven years. And it's not until he came to his right mind and humbled himself that he was restored. And oh my goodness, the man had a different attitude at the end of chapter 4. God gets all the glory. And sometimes God has to do that to us by way of divine discipline just to get us to understand that this is God's world and we are not God. We sometimes think we are. So you see this claim of ownership as Laban wants to enter into this covenant here with Jacob. You look at the second part of verse 43 is not just a claim of ownership, but a claim claim of power. But what can I do this day to these daughters or to their children whom they are born? In other words, I, I have the power over you. Now, that isn't true. Because Laban, going back to verse 24, had received a vision or a dream from God. And God told him, be careful that you do not speak to Jacob, either good or bad. So it seems to me like Laban has a bad case of the eyes. He's forgotten his rightful place in the world. Or perhaps he knew his rightful place in the world, but is bluffing. But anyway, this is the pretense, if you will, for this covenant that the two of them will enter into. You have the covenant offer there in verse 44. It says, so now come, let us, Laban speaking to Jacob, make a covenant, you and I. The word covenant in the book of Genesis is a big deal. It's the Hebrew word berith. But this is not like the kind of covenants that we've studied. This is not what we would call a vertical covenant coming from God to man. This is a horizontal covenant between two men. The covenant that makes Israel what she is is called the Abrahamic covenant, and that's a covenant from God to the patriarch Abraham. And then it's later transferred to Isaac and later transferred to Jacob. Genesis 15 verse 18 describes this covenant and it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, a covenant coming from God to man. Only the nation of Israel has such a thing. Later on in biblical history, God will enter into at Mount Sinai another covenant with the nation of Israel called the Mosaic covenant but that again is a special covenant only for israel psalm 147 verses 19 and 20 says concerning israel he declares his words to jacob the character that we're studying here 
a synonym for Israel. His statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Translation, only Israel has a covenant with God. And it's not even so much a covenant from Israel back to God. It's God initiating and making a covenant with Israel. That's why Israel is such a big deal in Scripture. She is the only nation that has ever existed in the history of mankind that has a covenant, a bereath coming from God to a nation. This is why you can't, in your thinking, ever get rid of Israel, as many theologians sadly try to do. Try to argue that the church has replaced Israel. You can't do that. Because Israel has a covenant from God, and a lot of the language in that covenant is unfinished business. So, by way of analogy, we may not have a covenant like this, but we sure have promises as Christians. Not coming from you to God, but coming from God to you. See, the gospel is not so much good advice to be obeyed, but it's good news to be believed. Of course, obedience in the Christian life is very important, but we didn't get into this relationship with God through obedience. We got into this relationship with God by His grace, undeserved favor, as He has made declarative statements coming from Him to you. And one of the things he says to us is, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them from my hand. And I'm here to tell you that never perish there is really a lousy English translation. I have the Greek there in brackets. It's a double negative. When you have in the Greek language a double negative, it's basically saying this can never, 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 never happen. The Spanish translation would say, no way, Jose. You will never, never perish. And then, I don't know why the English translators don't bring this up, but... As if that's not enough, the double negation also thrown in there is the word ionios or ionia, which means forever. Once you come to Christ as your Savior and you put your faith in Him for your salvation, you are in what we would call the double grip of grace. You are in the hand of God the Father. You are in the hand of God the Son and double negation. Absolutely nothing can take you out of it. Forever. I used to have all kinds of debates with this with my cousin who was always trying to teach me you can lose your salvation and I would bring this up. And he would say, yeah, but you can take yourself out of the Father's hand. And I'm thinking to myself, what part of nothing can take you out of the Father's hand do you not understand? (laughs) I mean, I can't even take myself out of the Father's hand. And a lot of people will never preach this doctrine of grace because they're afraid that people, wow, if they learn this, they're going to live like the devil Monday through Saturday and get spiritual on Sunday. 
The truth of the matter is the most consecrated people on planet Earth today that are doing the most for the Lord in terms of fruitfulness are people that understand this. Because if you understand this, you understand that God has given you something which is unreal. It's unbelievable. It's a gift, as Paul calls it, which is indescribable. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Paul says, I can't even put words to this. And how can a person who hears this, sees this, understands this, not want to serve God? I mean, I have a, I have a logical and a natural desire to please God in my daily life, not because I'm scared that He's going to rip the carpet out from under me one day. I, I can't believe what I possess. I can't believe what, what I have. This is what the nation of Israel had or has by way of covenant. This is what you have, spiritually speaking, by way of analogy. Yeah, but pastor, what, what if we become apostate? What if we become unbelieving? What if we get ourselves involved in all kinds of sins? I mean, surely God will take this gift away from us, won't he? Paul the Apostle deals with this in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13. I'm just going to read verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God doesn't put you on probation when you get saved. God doesn't say, okay, you got in by grace alone, through faith alone. Now you better work yourself to death to keep you in the Father's hand. That's not how this works. It's a promise that you'll spend your whole life trying to understand the depth of. And the more you understand this doctrine of grace, the more you say to yourself, you know, I could be faithless, I guess. I don't have any desire to do that, though. I desire to live for God. I desire desire to please God. So grace is not the enemy of holy living. In fact, it's the opposite. It becomes the right energy for holy living. And all the energy I could have spent, you know, wondering if I'm saved or not. So many Christians today don't even know if they're Christians because this doctrine of eternal security and assurance has been eclipsed by a man named John Calvin and another man named Jacob Arminius. Arminius said, if you live ungodly, you're going to lose salvation. John Calvin said, if you're not living the right way, then you never had salvation. Either way, it leads to insecurity and a lack of assurance. Because those two doctrines have the dominant market share in Christianity, your average Christian is subjected to this kind of teaching around the clock, and people have this sort of fear that, boy, I'm going to get to the final judgment and I'm not going to be included. So I better work hard to make sure I keep what I have. Oh, so you're your own savior then. When you start saying, I've got to work hard to keep what I have, that puts you in the driver's seat. Folks, we're not in the driver's seat here. God is in the driver's seat. God is the one that made the promise. 
Well, don't teach that too much, Pastor, because people will live like the devil. I don't think they will. I think when people understand this, they will naturally consecrate themselves to God. Romans 12, verse 1, which is reasonable. I mean, that's what's reasonable to do. If you're if you're living like the devil Monday through Friday, maybe you don't even don't understand this foundational truth. So you have been in a court of law 100% acquitted. Acquitted. I mean, you are not guilty. You are you are free to go. Would you return to your life a crime? That would be a dumb thing to do, given what you have. Why not take the remaining years of your life and invest them into a God that's done so much for us? But I bring this up because this is what Abraham had, Isaac had, Jacob had, by way of an analogy. But here you find something different happening. Two men are entering into a horizontal covenant. What uh, is the purpose of this horizontal covenant? You see it there in verse 44, second part of the verse. And let it, the covenant, between Jacob and Laban, let it be a witness between you and me. Let's agree to do no harm to each other. More on that in a minute. And with any covenant in the Bible, you have covenant witnesses. The witnesses are described there in verses 45 through 50. The first witness is a stone. It says in verse 45, Then Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. So let's take a stone and let's make that a pillar, which every time you look at that pillar, it reminds us of this covenant. And let's not stop there. Let's create a whole heap of stones. It says in verse 46, Jacob said to his kinsmen, who is his kinsmen? That would be his 11 sons. Verse 46, Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took the stones and made a heap. So now we have a stone and we have a heap of stones. And this is the witness to the covenant between Jacob and Laban. And let's eat. I like that. Verse 46, end of the verse, and they ate there by the heap. It's what you call in Scripture the the covenant meal. When God entered into, later in biblical history, the Mosaic Covenant with the nation of Israel, they had a great big meal surrounding that. Uh, Over in the book of Exodus, chapter 24 and verse 11, it says, And yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, that's at Mount Sinai, and they ate and drank. The covenant or promises that we have from God require a meal too. That's called the last, what? Supper. And you'll see that described in Luke 22, verses 14 through 23. Very common in Scripture, the covenant meal. Something that has almost been lost in our culture, which is we're always in a hurry. Fast food. Uh, In biblical times, when you sat down with a meal with someone, that was a sign of intimacy. 
you were seeking to spend what we would call quality time with that person. It was not something that was taken lightly at all. In fact, when Jesus speaks to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, remember Jesus is outside the door of that church seeking admittance to his own church. That is not saying that they weren't saved. If you go back into our archives covering the book of Revelation, we argued vociferously that they were saved. But Jesus was outside the door of the church because it was a church out of fellowship with Jesus. They were saved, but they weren't the vine in the branch bearing fruit the way he wanted. An out of fellowship Christian or Christians. Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus challenges that particular church. By the way, the words Laodicea, laos, people, decao, rule, compound word, two words making up one word, it means the people ruling. The people were having church without Jesus. They were having Christianity without Christ. That is something that can happen, sadly, in the life of the child of God. Jesus says we need to reverse that. And in Revelation 3, verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, wanting fellowship with them, in other words. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will dine with him and he with me. I want to have fellowship with you. I want to have a, as the way it's used metaphorically, I want to have a meal with you. I want to have intimacy with you. That's what the that's the significance of the covenant meal that went along typically with these biblical covenants. Well then what are what are the stones for? What's the heap for? The stones are and the heap are a reminder that every time you look at the stones and you look at the heap, you're reminded of the covenant. There's an interesting um, set of verses in Joshua 4, 4, verses 19 through 24. It says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and encamped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. In other words, God had performed the miracle at the Jordan, dried it up supernaturally. These twelve stones, which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. Hey, grab twelve stones and set them up on the other side that Israel came to. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel, cross this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, that's the previous generation, which he had dried up before his, before us until we had crossed. That, look at this. All the peoples of the earth, that's a big group, 
that all the peoples of the earth may have known that hand of God is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Hey, grab these stones out of the Jordan. Let's set them up as a heap. Let's set them up as a monument. Joshua, why are we doing that? Because the day in history will come when your children and your grandchildren are going to ask their youth pastor. Oops, doesn't say that. Are going to ask mom and dad. Love youth pastors. But a youth pastor can only reinforce what's happening at home. The transmission of knowledge, spiritually, is to go from parent to child. And when your children ask, what are these stones doing here? Hey, here's a teaching moment. Where you can talk about the miracle that the Lord did for our nation in drying up the Jordan. And by the way, don't stop there. Talk about what he did in the prior generation by drying up the Red Sea. And this is how the knowledge of the Lord is going to be spread to the whole world. Through the covenant witness. Through the covenant sign. And this is why in your life and in your family, I think you need to keep some sort of record. I don't know how you might do it. Maybe electronically, maybe journaling, whatever it is where you write down and maybe have some kind of sign or insignia of some kind when your family gets a blessing from the Lord. You know, look at what the Lord did for us with a new job opportunity. Look at how the Lord came through for us financially. Uh, look Look at how the Lord rescued my daughter or grandchild from drug abuse. Or whatever the miracle is. And you, you you clearly see the hand of God in it. You document it. Because the day is going to come when you're going to be in the middle of another crisis. And you're going to need some sort of tangible reminder of the faithfulness of God. And the covenant witness, the journal, the insignia, the picture, whatever it is. You're going to say God was faithful then. He's going to be faithful now. That's the, the power of a covenant. That's the power of the covenant signs. They're all through the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. And so as Jacob and Laban are entering into this horizontal agreement, they set up this stone and they set up a heap to remind them of the agreement that the two men are about to enter into. And these covenant markers have names. There's an Aramaic name. God bless Ed Jones for trying to read that. I'm just going to call it JS for short. How's that? Now, Laban called it, let's see here, Jagar Sahadutha. No, I'm not speaking in tongues, but it's an Aramaic name. And if that's not enough, let's give it a Hebrew name. That's what Laban called it, this stone or this heap. But Jacob called it Galid, verse 47. Well, do those strange names have meanings? They do. 
But notice, first of all, an Aramaic name, verse 47, a Hebrew name, verse 47. Do you realize that in biblical times, right into the New Testament, which is the crescendo of all of this, people probably spoke four languages? There was Hebrew. Old Testament is written in primarily Hebrew. Then there's Aramaic that they spoke. And then Alexander the Great came to power and he brought in about 300 years before the time of Christ the Greek language, which was the hand of God because the Greek language is one of the fullest languages that we have. There's one word for love in English for in Greek, depending on what type of love you're talking about. Romantic love, brotherly love. Family love or agape, selfless love. God allowed Alexander the Great to bring in that language because he knew that Jesus was going to show up and he wanted the fullest dialect in place to record the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if if all, all that weren't enough, then the Romans had come to power and they brought in the Latin language And that's why when you go through the Gospels, as Jesus is being mocked and a a sign is hanging over his head as he's dying on the cross, one Gospel writer will record it in Hebrew, another in Aramaic, another in Greek, and another in Latin. Why? Because they spoke four languages. So human beings have really not gotten smarter. Do you guys know four languages? Most people don't. We have a tendency to think, evolutionary paradigm, that the further you go back in time, the stupider people are. Because after all, we're the smartest people that ever lived, right? Because uh, we have cell phones. <laughs> but actually, as you go back further in time, the whole evolutionary paradigm is actually wrong. People were smarter back in ancient times than they, than they are today. It's interesting that everything the world teaches... The Bible goes in the exact opposite direction. But at any rate, this um, name for this marker is given in Aramaic. It's given by Jacob in Hebrew. Um, what, what does the name mean? It says there in verse 48, Laban said, this heap is a witness. That's what it means. Between you and me to this day. I can't watch you as you're leaving and you can't watch me, but God is going to watch. That's what they're getting at here. And what was Laban worried about? We will see in just a moment. He was worried about money. He was worried about finances. More on that in just a second. And then it moves on into the second part of verse 48 and the first part of verse 49. They finally agree on a final name. Therefore, its name was Galid. Uh, Galid means heap because it was a pillar with many other stones around it. Therefore, its name was Galid, first part of verse 49, and Mizpah. What does Mizpah mean? It means watchtower. God is going to watch over what is happening here. 
And then you get a description of the final name, second part of verse 49 into verse 50. For he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from each other. Verse 49. A lot of people take this as a benediction. If you're separated from your husband or wife for a while or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or whatever, you know, nice romantic line is, may the Lord watch over us while we're absent from each other. And they'll quote this verse. The problem is we're in favor of romance here, but the verse has nothing to do with it. Find another verse for Valentine's Day or whatever. This this verse is sort of a warning. You better do your part of the covenant or God is going to watch because I can't watch you and you can't watch me is, is the idea. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, The reason for this was, for he said, Jehovah, watch between me and you when we are absent from another. Many have taken this to be a benediction to be applied to oneself when separated from a girlfriend, boyfriend, husband or wife, etc. However, in the original meaning in context, this was not a benediction but a warning. A warning between two men who really could not trust each other. The pillar and the heap now erected were to mark a border which neither one was to cross over. Laban did not want Jacob to cross back over to Padan Aram, which is in Haran, with the teraphim. Remember the household idols? If you had the household idols, you could claim authority over someone's estate. That's what Laban is worried about. Laban did not want Jacob to cross over to Padan Aram with the teraphim and claim his property. This was the real meaning of the actions here. Verse 50 just spells out the meaning of the heap of witnesses. So what did these two men actually agree on as signified by this stone and this heap. What Jacob is supposed to do is right there in verse 50, if you mistreat my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us to see, God is a witness between you and me. Jacob, you've got two things you've got to do. Don't mistreat my daughters. And don't take wives beside my daughters. Now, here again, uh, a statement like that doesn't make any sense unless you have a little bit of archaeological background through what are called the Newsy tablets. As we've explained in past lessons, the Newsy tablets are clay tablets that were discovered near Kirkuk in Iraq in the 1920s, they date back to the mid-2nd century millennium B.C. when Nuzi was part of the Haranian Empire. They contain family archives and legal documents that shed light on the, on the everyday life and customs of the Haranians and their neighbors in Mesopotamia. Some of these customs, such as the tablets of sistership, may have parallels with biblical patriarchs who lived in the same region several hundred years earlier. The Newsy tablets sort of show us that, wow, the Bible is actually credible in the statements that it makes. 
Now, before 1920, you had to accept these statements by faith, but you don't have to anymore. Because the Newsy tablets confirm archaeologically the scenario in which the Bible occurred. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says here again, there is documentation from the Newsy tablets which states that Walu, or Wulu, that's quite a name, isn't it? would lose the property if Nashwi, if he took a wife besides Nashwi's daughter. So when Laban says to Jacob, take care of my daughters and don't marry any others, because he's got two wives, uh, Rachel and Leah, both of whom, as we have studied, come from 14 of the 20 years of labor, that Laban put Jacob through in Haran. When Laban says to Jacob, don't take any other wives, it's consistent with different statements in the Newsy tablets. Don't mistreat my daughters. Don't take wives besides my daughters. Because God sees. That's what Mizpah, watchtower, means. You look at verse 50, although no man is with us to see God is a witness between you and me. That's why this covenant is called witness, uh, heap, and watchtower. God is looking. God sees. I can't monitor the situation. I'm going back to my home. But God will see if you do this. The expression God sees is very, very interesting. It's where this idea of a watchtower comes from. God sees and will judge. Not human judgment, but divine retribution because God sees. In fact, in that word galid, the last part of the word eid, you get the word in Hebrew for witness. God sees. All the way through the Bible, God has given different names. One of the names that we have studied is the name El Roy, which basically means God sees. You might uh, recall Genesis 31 and verse 12 earlier in the chapter, where God says this to Jacob, I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I've seen the injustice. I've seen the abuse. Because I am a God that sees the different names for God. God is called Elohim. Genesis 1.1, speaking of his power. That's why that name for God is used at the beginning of the creation account where God in six days brings into existence Ex nihilo, something from nothing, the heavens, shamayim, plural, the heavens and the erets and the earth. When God does that, he uses the name Elohim to describe his activities. And then this powerful God wants a relationship with us. Unbelievable to me. That's why he's described with the name Yahweh in Genesis 2, which is a recounting of day six where God formed the first man, Adam. 
and then Eve. Why the switch in Hebrew from Elohim to Yahweh? Because this God of power wants a relationship with you. It's just stunning to think about that, that the God who created everything and is all-powerful wants to hear from you in your prayer life as an individual. He's also Elroy, Genesis 16, verse 13, the God who is aware because he sees. He knows what's happening in your life. If you're getting the short end of the deal, he sees that. Just like he saw it with Jacob. Genesis 21:33. there he's called El, that's the word for God. Olam, which means eternal. He's the God that always was. He's the uncaused cause. Was there ever a time in which he was not? Nope. Always been. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and tell you that Jesus was a created being, you say, nope, 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 sorry. Eh, Thanks for playing. (laughs) Mormons say the same thing. He's a created being. He's not a created being. He's always been. He is the eternally existent second member of the eternal Godhead. There never was a time in which he was not. The only difference is at the point of the virgin conception, to eternally existent deity, humanity was added. He became the God-man. But don't get the idea that Jesus suddenly showed up with the virgin conception. The virgin conception, by the way, is not a subtraction, it's an addition. It's not an exchange, it's an addition. It's adding to what he has always been. El Olam. Yeah, but pastor, I wish you'd preach on something practical. I've got some financial issues I need to work through. Oh, well, number five. Jehovah Jireh. He is the provider. And then as we're going to see in just a minute, if we get there, can't promise that. He is called the God that Isaac feared. He is to be, he is to be reverenced. God manifests these different qualities to us depending upon our need, but it's the same God. My daughter actually came up and asked a question about this right after study last week. And I came up with an illustration that was so good. I said, why didn't I use that with the flock? Not to break my arm patting myself on the back here. But but she was trying to understand this. And I said, well, like to your mom, I'm husband. To you, I'm dad. But it's still me. It's not, a, it's not a different guy that's a husband. At least I hope not. <laughs> different guy that's a dad. It's, it's me. But I play different roles. I am to you something slightly different than what I am to your mother. That's how God is. He, he's the same God. But depending upon your need, he's Elohim, he's Yahweh, he's the God that sees, he's the God that's forever, he's the provider, he's the God that is to be reverenced, exact same God. And that's where Wellhausen went off the rails because he said, well, these are obviously different documents here because there's different descriptions of God. No, no, same God, but he has different names 
because he manifests different ways to his people depending upon the need at the given moment. So God is going to see is what Laban is saying to Jacob. This is basically a covenant between two men that really don't trust each other very well. What is Laban's perspective on the covenant? You see it there in verses 51 through 53. You'll notice verse 51, and Laban said to Jacob, this is Laban's viewpoint on all this. Behold this heap and behold this pillar which I have set between me and you. So he's making reference there to the pillar and the heap which are the covenant witnesses. And then we get to the meaning of the whole thing. Verse 52, this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass by this heap to you for harm. And you, Jacob, will not pass by this heap or this pillar to me for harm. Now we see what Laban is really interested in. He's interested in creating a border. A border between Haran up north and Canaan, the land of Jacob's birth. Laban's part is he won't intervene to protect his daughters because after all, God is watching. Jacob's part, he will not use the teraphim or the household idols to lay financial claim on Laban's estate. Remember Genesis 31, verse 19? Remember what Rachel did just before she left Haran? It says, Rachel stole the household idols. I'm not even sure Jacob at this point understands that has happened. Because Genesis 31:32 says, For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. But Laban is thinking, because the teraphim give me access to the estate, if you ever figure out you have the teraphim or the household idols, you might come up to Haran and take away my money and my finances. So let's just create a border. I won't go into your territory. You don't come into my territory. All of this would be nonsensical if we didn't have the Nuzi tablets and the Code of Hammurabi. I won't reread all of this to you because we've done it in prior lessons. But the Code of Hammurabi and the Nuzi tablets explain the power of the household idols, which in Hebrew are the teraphim. According to the customs of the day, if you controlled those, you controlled the estate. This is why Rachel ripped them off before she left Haran, because she could see that her husband, Jacob, was getting the short end of the stick, as was she. I'll get even here. I'll take the keys to the estate, is basically what she did. It's not commending her for doing it. It's explaining this is what happened. This is why Laban has traveled all this distance to search for these household idols, which really wouldn't make any sense because he could have replaced them in a local shop. The whole passage doesn't make any sense until the Code of Hammurabi was discovered to explain the power of the household idols. You had to accept all of this in faith until modern archaeology has vindicated 
The biblical record, the Newsy tablets explain it as well. Do you, do you understand that Wellhausen, when he developed his view that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, said, we know that Moses did not write the Pentateuch because there was no such thing as human writing in the time of Moses. And everybody said, well, that's just brilliant. And they developed this view that other people, long after the fact, drawing from some late source, put the book of Genesis together. Everybody knows Genesis was not written by Moses. There was no such thing as writing in the time of Moses. And then all of a sudden, they discovered the Code of Hammurabi. Whoops! This was long after this Wellhausen JEPD theory was rolling like a snowball, convincing everybody that the Bible can't be true. Whoops! We just found the Code of Hammurabi. What is that? That is a legal code in written form. It's very intricate and it's very detailed that predates Moses. Bellhausen, if he was alive at the time and capable of it, probably would have blushed. Gee, shucks, didn't think about that. And Bellhausen at the end of the day looks like a total fool. Yet what does the world do? They suppress the truth about the writing issue because they've already bought into the code of, uh, they've already bought into Wellhausen's denial of mosaic authorship. I've studied under some of really good archaeologists. I'm not an archaeologist, but I've studied under some of the best. And they have told me that if Wellhausen had the archaeological discoveries that we have today, the JEPD theory would have never gotten out of the gate. And sadly, the JEPD theory, the Wellhausen theory, denial of mosaic authorship, is the love of the land in most seminaries and schools. And the whole thing came into existence without the full record of archaeology. That's how dumb unbelievers look when they buy into that. And yet they think they're the smartest people on planet Earth. They're regurgitating an old theory which would have never seen the light of day if they knew what we know about archaeology. They'll they'll never tell you this on the History Channel, what I'm explaining here. They will never tell you this uh, on Mysteries of the Bible, A&E. You'll just get propagandized. They won't bring on a, a conservative to refute what these guys are saying because these are people at the end of the day that really don't care about you other than the fact that you don't believe the Bible. And they'll just spout out the propaganda even though the propaganda has no factual basis or factual foundation behind it. So that's what Laban is worried about. And I'm glad we got to this because this is the title of my sermon here. Everything else was introduction. The, the misery of materialism. This is why 
What does it say at the end? Laban departed and went to his place, back to his place. It actually is sad because Laban drops off the radar screen at this point. We don't hear from him again. It's highly unlikely the man ever came to saving faith in Yahweh. And what kept him back? Money. The love of money. It's, it's obvious in his actions. The only thing he really cared about, he didn't care about his daughters. He didn't care about his son-in-law. He didn't care about the bridesmaids. He didn't care about his 11 grandchildren. He didn't care about his granddaughter. What he cared about was finances. Don't take the teraphim and use it against me. And for all I know, this man, Laban, went to his grave in that pathetic state. What does the New Testament say? Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Remember the rich young ruler? where Jesus looked into his heart, I would think, and saw the man had an idolatry problem with money. And Jesus said to him, you got to get rid of everything. Because this stuff is, is blinding you to your need for a relationship with me. You don't want me as your God because you've already got a God. Your God is money. So in his case, Jesus says, dump it all, get rid of it. And what does it say about the rich young ruler in the New Testament? Mark 10, 22. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving. For he was one that owned much property. That's Laban. What does 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 say? For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some people longing for it have wandered far from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It never says money is the root of all evil. That's not a problem having money. It's does the money have you. The problem isn't having possessions. It's do the possessions possess you. Because if that's the case, God says now we have a problem. Because the human heart is only designed to serve one God. And... If you've already got a God, little g, there's no room for the true God. So you read this about Laban, and I just am sort of grieved as I read it. I never really looked at it that way until I was trying to study through this passage. I mean, the man is to be pitied. He sacrificed his soul and his his eternity, really, on the God... Little g of money. So you go into verse uh, 53. And what you're seeing here is what happens when I run out of notebook room. I can't remember what notebook I'm supposed to access. You go down to verse 53 and you have divine witnesses. Verse 53, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. He is rehearsing the fact that God is going to watch out concerning this covenant. Notice that Laban, who's speaking, calls 
God, the God of Abraham. No problem there. He also calls him the God of Nahor. Nahor was Abraham's brother, as you can see from the family tree. No problem there. But then you look at verse 53, and he says the God of their father. Who's there? Abraham and Nahor's father, Terah. Terah, the best we know, did not have a knowledge of the true God. See what Laban is doing? He's mixing everything together. The man was a syncretist, in other words. You put everything into a blender and you just come out with a God of your own liking. Terah, John, Abraham's father, Joshua 24 verse 2, says of Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, they served other gods. We know that Laban was sort of trying to combine everything together because he had in his home the household idols. We also know Genesis 31 verse 19 that uh, Laban was into divination. It says in Genesis 31 verse 19, when Laban had gone to shear his flock, then Rachel stole the household idols. Genesis 30 verse 27 says, but Laban said, if it now pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. Divined. You might remember when we were studying that verse, we had this quote from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Laban was a a pagan who practiced occult occult divination. Who was Laban at the end of the day? He was the two things that keep more people away from the truth than any other two things I can think about. Number one, he was a materialist. He had a God, little g, no room for the true God. Number two, he was a syncretist. Yeah, you can have your religion, but I have mine too. Jesus, people say, is not the way. He's a way. I'm glad people say you found enlightenment with your particular guru. I'm glad that's all working out for you as a Christian. But I've got my own thing going over here. Thank you very much. Reminds me of a guy. I used to be a courier for a law firm, believe it or not. I was driving in cars and getting in other people's cars constantly. And he had a a little picture, a little statue of the Virgin Mary in the back of his car. And then from the front of the car, from the rearview mirror, was hanging those big fuzzy dice, like Las Vegas stuff. And I asked the guy, well, you've got the Virgin Mary in the back and you've got the gambling dice in the front. Are these sort of like, how do you put all this together? He says, hey, man, I've got both ends covered. That's what he told me. I've got both ends covered. And a lot of people are like that with their spirituality. Let's just kind of mix it all together because I want to have all ends covered at the end of the day. The problem is the Bible is exclusive. Jesus does not present himself as one of many options. I mean, he says things like this. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many there are that go that way. Narrow is the road that leads to life. Few are those which find it. 
I'm here to tell you folks that hell itself as I speak is filled with people who are materialists and syncretists. And if you've got a materialist and a syncretist in the same person, who can be saved? I mean, God has to really do a work to bring that kind of person to his knees to get him even to the place where he's willing to trust Jesus as his Savior because he recognizes he was drowning. Laban's life is too filled with the wrong stuff that he wouldn't let go of. You have uh, Jacob's response, verse 53. He swore. He offered a sacrifice. They enjoy the covenant meal together. They're on the mountain all night long. And look at all the things I was going to communicate with each of those. That just ain't going to happen, is it, folks? I'm intimidated just looking at this PowerPoint. And then Laban departs with a blessing. He never blesses Jacob. And he departs. And that's the last we see of Laban. I'm going to have to finish the second part of verse 53 and verse 54 and verse 55 next time. Will you guys allow me to do that? You're like, please, Pastor, please do that. <laughs> but when you look at Laban's condition, it is a perfect segue into the Gospel. Because I would just ask people, as the Spirit of God is convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment, which is what Jesus said the Spirit of God would do, is your heart so filled with junk that you have no room for the true God? I mean, has finances, money, success, all of those things not wrong in and of themselves, have those things taken such a dominant position in your heart that they've become a God little g? If so, you need to repent. You need to change your mind, in other words. Or, or is your theology such that as long as you're sincere and honest and seeking spirituality through your own path, that's okay, you do the Jesus thing, I'll do my own thing. Are you a syncretist? Are you a miserable materialist or are you a syncretist? Because if those are the two things, or even one of the two things that you are, God right now is doing a work on your heart whereby he's convicting you of that. And he wants you to repent. He wants you to change your mind. So now that there is room in your heart, it's hard to fill a glass that's already full, isn't it? Now there's room in your heart to respond to the truth. I wish I had the ability to philosophize people into a relationship with God. I really wish I could do that. I wish I was 
articulate enough where I could convince people of these truths. But the truth of the matter is no human being is. That's the job of the Spirit. The Spirit is in the business of conviction or persuasion. I pray that that's what the Holy Spirit is doing now. I hope people that are hearing these words, some way, somehow, the Spirit is taking them like daggers, driving them into their into their heart, convincing them of their need for Jesus. And I hope many, many people under that conviction are putting their trust exclusively into the true God, Jesus Christ, capital G. Because if that doesn't happen to a person, they have the same pathetic destiny as Laban. You just drop off the radar screen. You lose your significance in life. You go to your horrific eternal destiny and that's the end. What a tragedy that that has to happen to anybody. May the Lord help us understand the magnitude of this and our need to trust in Christ as the Savior. You can trust in Christ as the Savior now, even as I'm speaking. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do, join a church to do, give money to do. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where you come under this conviction and you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. You can do that now even as I'm speaking. If it's something that you need more understanding on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for these events of history, the lessons that they teach us, good and bad. Help us to be a people in an age of uncertainty who have not only trusted in you alone for salvation, but are trusting you this week as we walk as your people through various trials and tribulations. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said,